This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. October 1908. New York's most legendary detective, Joseph Petrosino, walked into an Italian market that the New York Times called easily the most pretentious mercantile establishment in that section of the city. The store belonged to the dapper Ignacio Lupo, better known by the English translation of his last name, The Wolf. His seven-story import emporium on 210 Mott Street was filled with old-world delicacies and fresh produce. But Joseph Petrosino wasn't there to go grocery shopping. New York's top cop had spent the past five years investigating the violent extortion syndicate The Black Hand, and The Wolf was high up in its leadership. The store was just a front. For months, Petrosino had urged his community to boycott the wolf stores because he was bleeding them dry with his extortion. In retaliation, the wolf made it known on the streets of Little Italy that there was a price on Petrosino's head. So Petrosino waited for a day when the wolf was at his store. The five-foot-three, 48-year-old detective, built like a barrel, walked up to the counter and called out to Lupo. No witness heard what the two men said to each other. But with one punch, Petrosino knocked the man to the ground and set about administering a brutal beating. By the time it was over, the wolf's fine imported suit was covered in his own blood. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. 
You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first episode on Joseph Petrosino, one of New York's most legendary police officers. This week, we'll be exploring his rise from garbage man to personal friend of the president and his conflict with his greatest foe, the Black Hand. Next week, we'll find New York City at war with itself and follow Petrosino's desperate final mission to Sicily. We'll also look at his role in the formation of the American Mafia. In the summer of 1900, silk weaver Gaetano Bresci abandoned his anarchist newspaper in Patterson, New Jersey, and hopped on a ship to Paris. By July 29th, he had made it to Monza, Italy, where he assassinated Italian King Umberto I. This was a new kind of political assassination. Umberto was not murdered by a political rival, but by an ideological one, anarchy. The Italian government was convinced Bresci was working as part of a larger movement in America, and they insisted that President McKinley look into it. McKinley was skeptical, but wanted to maintain good relations with Italy. His vice president, Teddy Roosevelt, knew just the man for the job. His personal friend from his days as a New York police commissioner, Lieutenant Joseph Petrosino. Petrosino immediately understood the gravity of the situation. He had been given an assignment by the president, and the cop who had come from nothing to live the American dream was a committed patriot. He would do whatever it took to infiltrate the anarchists. Petrosino traveled to Patterson, New Jersey in the fall of 1900, where he took up one of his most common assumed identities, that of an illiterate laborer fresh from Italy. He lived in the same boarding house as Bresci and took a job at a local construction site filled with anarchists. The detective quickly befriended his co-workers, and soon they invited him to their anarchist meetings. Petrosino attended and wrote careful notes once he went home. He was aided by his secret weapon, a remarkable, even photographic memory. After three months in Patterson, Petrosino discovered a terrifying plot. In the winter of 1901, he sat down with the president and vice president in the White House and announced that the Patterson anarchists had a list of assassination targets, and at the top of the list was President McKinley. As for who would carry out the hit, the anarchists devised a novel technique to select their assassins. They decided the most anarchic method was to randomize the choice. Names were fed into the kind of drum used for a raffle or bingo. Whoever was selected from the drum would be the killer. In the summer of 1900, Gaetano Bresci's name had been chosen to kill King Umberto, and he dutifully traveled to Italy to do the job. Every other anarchist was willing to do the same. Petrosino presented his findings with pride. The NYPD cop 
a devout patriot, had found hard evidence of a plot to murder the president. He could feel the medals already. But the two most powerful men in the country were unimpressed. Roosevelt even cracked a joke, saying that he hoped an anarchist wouldn't make him president. McKinley and Roosevelt treated the 18-year veteran detective like a gullible novice. It was a long, humiliating train ride back up to New York. Months later, in September 1901, President McKinley was assassinated at the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, by anarchist Leon Chogosh. When the press went to NYPD headquarters for comment, they found Petrosino sobbing. The proud American was overcome with grief at the loss of his president. When he regained his composure, Petrosino told the reporters that he had warned the president of the anarchist threat almost a year earlier. At that moment, Petrosino went from local legend to national and even international star. As the detective who could have saved the president, he was an icon. But his was no overnight success. Petrosino had worked for years developing his high-level connections, gumshoe skills, and relationship with the press. It would take cunning and courage for an impoverished, motherless immigrant to become America's top cop. It started on the schoolyard. In 1873, 13-year-old Giuseppe Petrosino immigrated with his father from Salerno, Italy. They left his younger brother Vincenzo in Italy with family. While over four million Italians would come to New York between 1880 and 1924, upon his arrival, Petrosino was one of under 25,000 in the city. His mother had passed in the old country, and the young man who was already approaching his maximum height of five feet three inches had a chip on his shoulder. In the 1870s, the neighborhood he landed in was a long way off from being called Little Italy, and Petrosino was bullied mercilessly by his mostly Irish classmates. He soon made a reputation for never losing a fight. Petrosino dropped out of school in the sixth grade and took every job he could get, shoeshiner, newspaper boy, and even a touring violinist traveling as far as the Deep South. Throughout his life, Petrosino would return to the violin as a source of comfort, playing songs from his childhood over and over. Of all his early jobs, it may have been Petrosino's tenure as a newspaper boy that would most impact his future career. He learned how newspaper editors think and what kinds of stories sell. He would use those skills to become, in the era before the FBI, one of the most famous and powerful law enforcement officers in the world. But Petrosino had a long way to go from shoeshiner to cop, especially because at the time, the majority Irish department had never accepted an Italian recruit. His way in? Garbage. In 1870s New York, garbage services were under the control of the police department. At 18, Petrosino got a job clearing trash off the streets. Whether he initially intended to rise through the ranks, we don't know. But by 1883, 
the pint-sized Italian was ordering around men twice his age as the captain of a trash barge that took New York City's garbage out to sea and dumped it into the ocean. One day, Inspector Clubber Williams, the czar of the Tenderloin, saw Petrosino in command of the barge, and he must have liked the cut of his jib. Clubber had risen from poverty to the heights of New York society thanks to the routine corruption that defined Gilded Age New York. He owned a 53-foot yacht and a mansion in Connecticut. When asked how he afforded it all, his answer was invariably, Japanese real estate. To prove the extent of his grip on the Lower East Side, Clubber once hung his gold stopwatch at a local intersection for a whole day. No one touched it. Clubber was a legend who was always looking for new men who would be loyal to him. Not only that, but it's possible the tough old Irishman may have seen something of himself in the hard-driving young Italian. Once he got Petrosino off the boat, there was just one problem. The 23-year-old was four inches shorter than the NYPD's minimum height requirement. Luckily for him, Clubber was not a stickler for regulations. He hired him on the spot. After years of fighting to find his place in an unfriendly new country, Petrosino had a new identity, New York City cop. Giuseppe had become Joseph, the playground enforcer, now a man of the law. Up next, we'll take a look at how Petrosino made his name as a cop and the vicious criminal cabal he devoted his life to taking down. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now back to the story. In 1883, 23-year-old Joseph Petrosino suited up in blue for the first time. He must have been filled with pride. A garbage man with a sixth-grade education had become the first Italian officer in the NYPD. Petrosino's high spirits didn't last for long. Walking out in Little Italy that morning, he tried to greet his neighbors, people he had known half his life, but they turned away from him. No one would even make eye contact. He was a pariah. The Italian population in New York was vehemently anti-police. The vast majority were impoverished laborers from southern Italy, a region repressed by the North since the Roman Empire. Many of these immigrants were escaping criminal convictions back home. In New York, the tension got so bad 
Petrosino was forced to move into an Irish neighborhood. Things weren't much better for Petrosino at work. During that first year, Petrosino spent most of his nights at the station, cleaning his clothes in the office sink. At best, the Irish cops ignored him. At worst, they insulted him. Petrosino heard it all, and then some, during his early years. Though his relationship with Clubber Williams prevented any extreme physical harm, just the fact that he was Italian made it difficult for him to make friends. And things were only getting more challenging in Little Italy. Even Italian-Americans with no ties to the underworld had good reason to distrust the law enforcement officials in their new country. When Petrosino was an eight-year veteran of the NYPD, a hate crime in New Orleans made Italian-Americans fear that their new homeland was suddenly turning against them. In 1890, the local police chief, David Hennessy, captured an Italian bandit lying low in the Big Easy. Months later, Hennessy was gunned down in retaliation while walking home from work. He died the next day. What followed was a widespread anti-Italian crackdown in the city, and eventually a trial of nine men who'd allegedly killed the police chief. When the men were acquitted due to lack of evidence, an angry mob broke into the jail where they were being held. And by the end of the day, 11 Italians were swinging from Louisiana trees. For the average Italian immigrant, the policy became, keep your head down and never ever talk to the police. The alternative could be death. If it wasn't for Teddy Roosevelt, Petrosino might have been forced out of the NYPD by the ethnic tensions. In 1895, however, Roosevelt became a reform commissioner of the force, testing every detective to make sure they were a competent cop. Roosevelt immediately admired the tough and brilliant Petrosino, and he promoted him to detective sergeant in 1895. After 12 long years on the force, Petrosino had become the only Italian detective in the country. He took to the new position like a fish to water. In addition to being the only officer able to interview in the Italian community, Petrosino had two great investigative gifts, his mastery of disguise and his photographic memory. While other officers relied on physical files to keep track of cases and suspects, Petrosino only needed to take one look at someone to memorize their face and biography for years to come. Any claims of photographic memory are a little suspect because the term has no set definition. In Petrosino's case, however, we have some hard evidence. One night, Petrosino climbed the stairs of 2428 First Avenue. He was going to a friend's place for dinner. On his way up, he glimpsed a man's face through the open doorway of an apartment and felt a flash of recognition. Petrosino continued up a few steps, then paused. He racked his brain. Surely he knew that face. Then it hit him. Chicago. Petrosino walked down to the man's apartment and with his characteristically commanding tone, ordered him to stand. Petrosino told the man what he knew. His name was Simini, 
and he was wanted in Chicago for the murder of Oscar Kornstrom with a razor four years earlier. 48 months before, Petrosino had seen a wanted poster put out by the Chicago police for just a split second, and he remembered it perfectly. Sanini confessed and was sent to Chicago for sentencing. Thanks to his unique skills and total drive, Petrosino quickly became the most effective crime fighter on the force. By 1896, Roosevelt had promoted him to the head homicide detective for the city. Petrosino excelled, soon achieving an NYPD record of 17 murder convictions in a single year. How did he do it? It was rumored that the detective never slept. Soon, the press dubbed Petrosino the Italian Sherlock Holmes. But Petrosino relied on more than Holmes's keen intellect. He also carefully cultivated a quality he called Pazienza. For Petrosino, Pazienza was related to patience, but they were not the same. What it meant was to stay stoic and not play your hand until the time was right. Only then could you explode with absolute passion. This may explain why some New Yorkers described Petrosino as the man who never smiles, even though many of his friends would attest to his charm. He was serious, quiet, and withdrawn until it was in his best interest not to be. What separated Petrosino from so many of his tough guy counterparts was his willingness to fight for a good cause even when it had no immediate benefit to him. Never was this quality more obvious than in the case of Angelo Carbone. In 1897, a bar fight broke out at a little Italy cafe called Trinucria. Two neighborhood men, Angelo Carbone and Natale Brugno, had gotten into a disagreement and it came to blows. Not long after leaving, Brugno was found dead, stabbed in the back by an unknown assailant. Angelo was immediately the prime suspect. He protested his innocence, but after a record short eight-hour murder trial, a jury convicted Angelo and sentenced him to the electric chair. Petrosino must have known about the case as the chief homicide detective, but he was not involved in the original trial. He would soon hear from his friends and informants, though, that something was fishy. Word on the street was, Angelo had been falsely accused. Petrosino decided to find out for himself taking the train to a place where he was widely despised, Death Row at Sing Sing Prison. There, he found a distraught young man who was adamant that his bar fight had not escalated to murder. The detective had heard a thousand men confess at this point, and he felt certain that Angelo was not a killer. He asked around and discovered another suspect who'd never been considered. A known enemy of Brugno's had been at the same cafe the night of the brawl, one Salvatore Ciramello. Salvatore hadn't been seen in Little Italy since. Petrosino vowed to find him with the dogged discipline of a bloodhound. Petrosino tracked Salvatore up and down the eastern seaboard, following leads in Jersey City, Philadelphia, and Montreal, assuming many false identities. All those threads 
went nowhere. Less than a week before Angelo's scheduled execution, Petrosino got a new tip. Salvatore was in Baltimore, and the informant had an address. Petrosino traveled to Baltimore and staked out the house in question. For two days, he saw no one matching Salvatore's description enter or exit. But the detective was persistent. He put on a fake beard, one of many disguises he carried with him on any trip like this, and knocked on the front door. An older woman opened it. Petrosino claimed he was a health inspector who had heard there might be a case of smallpox in the house. When the woman tried to send him away, he strong-armed his way inside, where he saw Salvatore holding an axe to chop firewood. Salvatore asked, Who are you? The detective simply replied, My name is Petrosino. The fear was evident in Salvatore's eyes. He panicked, dropped the axe, and immediately confessed to the murder. Petrosino brought Salvatore back to New York. Angelo's name was cleared just days before he would have been executed. The real killer took his place on death row. Petrosino's reputation had been made as the rare cop who cared more about justice than convictions, and his commitment to the Italian-American community was more obvious than ever. Over time, the gregarious and gifted detective befriended many powerful people in the city, dining out at restaurants with top journalists and politicians. He became one of the key Italian-American voices in civic society. Meanwhile, in criminal circles, his name was whispered with fear. By the late 1890s, it was said that all the detective had to say was, my name is Petrosino, and any perp would surrender. At least, that was the rumor. In many ways, Petrosino was lucky to make his name in the era of yellow journalism, when the tabloid press ruled New York City. In 1895, William Randolph Hearst bought the New York Journal and declared a circulation war with Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, doing anything to attract more readers. While this turf war was playing out, journalists had an easy rule of thumb. The more sensationalist, the better. New Yorkers ate up stories about the dogged, whip-smart Italian cop who came from nothing. Soon enough, Petrosino's name appeared in newspapers all over the country, as far away as Nashville and Los Angeles. Whether total fact or partial fiction, the legend of the first Italian cop in New York City would soon collide with the cold reality of the Black Hand, the most dangerous criminal syndicate ever to come to America. When we return, we'll follow the terrifying growth of the Black Hand and Petrosino's battle to form an Italian division of the NYPD. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now back to the story. At the end of the 1800s, Italian-Americans were just another immigrant group trying to live the American dream, better known for their opera than their criminals. But all that changed when the Black Hand extortion crews came to New York City, planting the seed for what would become the American Mafia. That seed would be watered with the blood of honest, hard-working Italians. The Black Hand announced themselves to the world in August of 1903. On the sweltering morning of August 3rd, wealthy dock builder Niccolo Capiello found a letter in his mailbox with no return address. The letter read, If you don't meet us at 72nd Street and 13th Avenue, Brooklyn, tomorrow afternoon, your house will be dynamited and your family killed. The same fate awaits you in the event of your betraying our purposes to the police. It was signed, La Mano Nera, The Black Hand. Below that, a skull and crossbones. Niccolo decided to ignore it. He'd never heard of the group, either in New York or in his hometown of Naples. But then, people started visiting him at his apartment. Friends, acquaintances, strangers, all said that the threats were deadly serious and he had to pay. Niccolo was baffled. Everyone he knew seemed to be involved somehow, and the letters kept coming. The threats could be graphic, describing heinous acts against his wife and daughter, and brutal torture to Niccolo himself. Soon, Niccolo decided he ought to pay the Black Hand. He appeared at the given address with the requested thousand dollars, and for a little while, the letters stopped. Niccolo and his family thought they were free. A few days later, a group of men arrived at the apartment whom Niccolo had never met before. This time, they wanted $3,000, worth more than $80,000 in today's money, or he and his family would be killed. But Niccolo didn't have the money. There was nothing he could do but live in terror. He told his family they couldn't leave the house, and he began opening the door with a gun drawn, no matter who was calling. Eventually, he'd had enough. Niccolo went to the police, and they organized a simple sting. They went to the designated drop-off point and rounded up the culprits. Five men were arrested, convicted, and sent to jail. In another era, the Black Hand's extortion might have been a niche problem within a few Italian-American communities. In the yellow journalism heyday of 1903, however, it made for great copy. 
The Herald Tribune broke Niccolo's story, and soon the evening news picked it up, running the headline, Cowers in Fear of Black Hand. Within weeks, millions around the country had heard of the criminal organization. The NYPD, meanwhile, had picked up another Black Hand case, this time a kidnapping. Just a day before Niccolo was targeted, on August 2, 1903, Eight-year-old Antonio Menino was wandering around Brooklyn when he saw a local candy shop and went inside. When he emerged, a family friend was waiting for him. They walked down the street together, and the two disappeared. Days later, the Meninos received a terrifying letter from the Black Hand saying they would have to pay or their child would be killed. The Meninos went to the police, who directed them to, who else? Petrosino. Initially, the department managed to keep Tony's kidnapping out of the papers, but as the situation stretched on for months, the media became obsessed with finding the boy. Petrosino had built quite a reputation as New York's top sleuth, and after 20 years on the force, he had formed strong connections in Little Italy. Tony Menino threatened everything he had spent his life working for. Petrosino instructed the Meninos to give nothing. The more money the Black Hand received, the more they would want. He was confident that by working his contacts and waiting for the Hand to make a mistake, he could crack the case. But the Black Hand had learned from Niccolo Capiello. They never sent a high-level operative to a pickup point, and the Meninos kept getting graphic letters. Nationwide, black hand paranoia was building as more and more people received threatening letters of their own. In Manhattan, it was fast approaching boiling point. In October of 1903, a rumor circulated in East Harlem that the Black Hand would burn down Public School 172 if they weren't paid. Hundreds of terrified parents stormed the school, trying to get their children out. The angry mob battered against the thick wooden doors, bending the wood almost until it broke. Only the intervention of the principal at the last moment prevented the destruction of the school. He told the crowd there was nothing to worry about. There had been no letter. The whole thing was a hoax. The Black Hand may not have been going after PS-172, but they were all too real. Throughout the fall of 1903, more and more children disappeared, and homemade bombs started going off in Italian neighborhoods throughout the city. As for little Tony Menino, his parents were fed up after months of no progress. They cut their contract with Petrosino and the rest of the police and paid off the kidnappers. Tony was returned. Petrosino had been defeated by the Black Hand. Winning the next battle seemed impossible. The Black Hand had little organization to infiltrate. There were already dozens of copycats around the nation, and the ringleaders could always head back to Italy if things got too hot. Petrosino must have spent many late nights playing violin and mulling it over. By the summer of 1904, he had a plan. Only Italian cops could successfully work with the Italian community. 
and he couldn't keep doing it all by himself. He was going to create a new arm of the NYPD called the Italian Squad. But Tammany Hall-backed police chief William McAdoo didn't agree with Petrosino's idea. The all-power political machine relied almost exclusively on Irish votes, and they knew their constituents resented the growing Italian population. So Petrosino went to his closest friends in town, the press. Over dinner one night at a local restaurant, he told a reporter friend that the Black Hand had become a massive threat to civil society and that he would need a squad of at least 20 native-speaking officers to stop them. Petrosino hoped that public pressure would be enough to convince McAdoo to give him the squad. Bolstered by the media outcry, he walked into the chief's office to ask for the squad himself. The chief protested that it would be a waste of money. No matter who the cop was, Italians would never trust the police. But that would have to change eventually. As the summer of 1904 grew hotter, the Black Hand became increasingly brazen. On August 22, 1904, a man in New Rochelle named Joseph Graffy was murdered, his heart cut in half with a knife. Meanwhile, wealthy Bronx contractor Antonio Baroncini was extorted for months after his wife was kidnapped. When he finally paid her captors, Mrs. Baroncini was returned. The same summer, an explosive destroyed a grocery store in New York. His wife was maimed in the blast. The press was abuzz with black hand fever and Petrosino was at his wit's end. His people were being murdered, kidnapped, and blown up in the streets, and he had no Italian politicians or superiors to appeal to. After months of public outcry, Tammany Hall relented. They realized it was no longer in their political interest to let the chaos continue, even if the Italians were not their base. On September 14th, Police Commissioner McAdoo gave Petrosino his mandate. He could hire five men of his choice to the Italian squad. Petrosino hunted Manhattan and Brooklyn for the best Italian cops he could find. First was Maurice Bonoil, a French-Irish man who had grown up in Little Italy and was famous for busting opium dens. He had been on the force almost as long as Petrosino. Then came 27-year-old Peter Dondero, a dapper and well-spoken cop who would soon earn a scar across his face from a brutal fight with a vagrant. George Silva and John Legomassini rounded out the squad, along with Ugo Cassidy, a loose cannon with dubious ethics. He asked to be referred to by the anglicized name Hugh Cassidy in honor of his hero, the outlaw Butch Cassidy. And maybe Ugo was onto something. The early 1900s were still a wild west in many parts of America, even it would seem in its largest city. It was up to them to play cops to some of the most vicious robbers the world had ever known. A reporter from the Evening World called the new Italian squad the Mysterious Six. Soon, a legend was born. Despised by their peers, the six had to forge their own way. Initially operating out of Petrosino's cramped apartment, 
then taking over an abandoned storefront in Little Italy. Critics derided the unit as a publicity stunt. What could six men do for an immigrant population rife with crime, whose numbers were doubling every year? But from the beginning, Petrosino told his men and the press that they were waging a war for the hearts and minds of the Italian community. He was fighting for everything he believed in, for his new country, which had brought him to heights he never could have dreamed of, and for the little Italy he had worked to build and preserve. Petrosino was ready for war. Unfortunately for him, so was the Black Hand. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore a city on fire and Joseph Petrosino's doomed journey to Sicily, where his legend would be put to the ultimate test. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Gareth Imperato, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton. Kingpins.